Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. If you're interested in my reviews of brand new movies, I also host another podcast. It is called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, and you can find the link to that at my website as well, Quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the third and the final part of the made-for-TV Star Wars films. This one from 1985, and it's a follow-up to the film I did on the previous episode called The Ewok Adventure. This is called Ewoks, The Battle for Endor. It is like the last one. It's not rated, but I would definitely rate this at least PG for mild, intense, and disturbing images of science fiction violence and action and some startling moments. The runtime is an hour and 34 minutes. Aubrey Miller, Wilford Brimley, Warwick Davis, those are the main stars. Supporting roles going to Sean Phillips, Carol Struckin, Nikki Botello, Tony Cox, and Daniel Frischman. The director is Jim Wheat and Ken Wheat, and the screenplay credited to the same, the Wheat Brothers, Jim Wheat and Ken Wheat. Now, The Ewoks, The Battle for Endor is the follow-up to The Ewok Adventure, as I mentioned. It came out in 1984, just a year before. Both of these are full-length films, and they're made for network television. The Ewok Adventure had drawn really high ratings for ABC, and they asked if Star Wars creator George Lucas could do a whole TV series featuring these teddy bear-like woodland creatures that he created for Return of the Jedi, But Lucas didn't want to do a weekly live-action series, with two animated series already being supervised by him on Saturday morning called The Ewoks and Droids, or The Ewoks and Droids Adventure Hour, as they were packaged together. Still, Lucas would make another live-action made-for-TV film for the Thanksgiving holiday weekend for 1985. It premiered on November 24th, and like its predecessor, it was released theatrically in international markets in the spring of 1986, although it did not fare nearly as well as the first film. Now, Lucas had been continuing his focus toward out-and-out fantasy films here, and that resulted in Lucasfilm productions in the latter half of the 1980s that were pure fantasy, Labyrinth and Willow, which he co-wrote Willow. He envisioned this follow-up more like a Brothers Grimm story than a space adventure, even though it's set in the Star Wars universe. And as such, he wanted to put in a few elements that might be a little bit spooky, a little bit intense, For younger viewers, much like a traditional fairy tale, like Little Red Riding Hood and Hansel and Gretel and Snow White, those are very intense and spooky in their own ways. And little kids did enjoy the Ewok adventure. But older kids that came out to see Star Wars, those films in the theaters, now they were entering their teenage years. And that crowd mainly found the first film boring. So Lucas felt that the story should also engage that crowd, the fans of the films, and the parents who watch along with them. Now, test screenings for The Battle for Endor did reveal that those older viewers did enjoy this much more mature attempt, especially its emphasis on action and humor. Lucas did have a few issues with the network censors for the first film, which he was able to satisfy with some additional reshoots and trimming, but he was not going to be so gracious this second time. Battle for Endor is a much more intense and violent film than the first one, and it's filled with many more scenes of adventure featuring this young girl and cute Ewoks in constant peril. 
Definitely not for the youngest tykes out there. Now, Lucas had the production team meet with the Children's Television Workshop, the one that kind of co-produced the Sesame Street show. It's called Sesame Workshop nowadays. And several psychologists were also consulted. Those who specialize in childhood development, they were all sought for guidance on how to handle the death scenes of the family that happened at the beginning of this film. From the finished product, you might surmise that the advice must have been to display the family's deaths casually, without a lot of emotion or any kind of psychological contemplation before you move on to the plot points. Despite precautions, ABC's Department of Standards and Practices did require that the battle for Endor carry a parental discretion warning before the movie because it was going to attract many young viewers expecting a continuation of the Kitty film that was the first one in this Ewok series. This film does start off on the wrong foot for kids programming. The traumatic killing of the family that I alluded to just a moment ago we rooted for that family in the Ewok adventure, but Sindel was supposed to take center stage here. And like many people today who see the Ewok films back to back, it really does defeat the heartwarming ending of seeing the family reunited at the end of the first film, only to put this one on and to have the little girl orphaned within the first few minutes of this next entry. And not only will this be seen as distressing to those youngest viewers that the film is trying to appeal to, at least the first film did, but it also repeats a familiar occurrence that we've already seen in Star Wars. You know, Luke Skywalker, he was basically orphaned and he gets orphaned again when uncle and aunt end up getting killed. So he has no choice but to go on this adventure. You know, it also is not handled with enough emotion and depth. So the scenes that were carried by five-year-old Aubrey Miller here, whose only other acting experience was the first Ewok film, she is better here. She's Still not quite skilled enough to pull off the kind of anguish that a child her age must feel at seeing her whole family murdered in front of her eyes. I think the real misstep here is in thinking that anyone would want an Ewok TV adventure that their young children might be too frightened to view. The sibling team of Jim and Ken Wheat, they took on the writing and direction. They met with George Lucas on a couple of lengthy sessions for him to be able to explain the elements that he wanted in the story that they were going to write. Lucas explained that he and his daughter Amanda had recently watched the 1937 film version of Heidi. That one starred Shirley Temple, and Shirley Temple is the actress that Lucas felt that Aubrey Miller most resembled. They even curl her hair in the style of Shirley Temple for the movies. Lucas had this notion of recreating that film's grumpy old man and sweet young girl dynamic by having Sindel become an orphan like Heidi and then being taken in by an old hermit deep in the wooded area of Endor. The Wheat Brothers went along with this, but they also brought in another idea that they had of making this more of an adventure film. They came up with this idea of this army of marauders who had once crash-landed on Endor, and they would become a threat to the Ewok existence on that moon. Lucas was okay with these ideas, so long as the marauders were a race that was seven feet tall. That was kind of like his only requirement. The Wheat Brothers being allowed this leeway in the story gave them kind of a false impression that they might direct this with some sort of authorship, only to find that George Lucas reminded them that this was his show all the way. And by his show, really, it's Amanda's show. He wanted it to be for her. For instance, the Wheat Brothers had several ideas for what the older brother from the first film, Mace Tawani, would do in this film. All of those ended up nixed by George Lucas. He told them candidly that the only reason he was doing the film was for his adopted daughter, Amanda. And that means that the girl who is her age gets to be the primary hero. 
along with her favorite character, Wicket. Eric Walker, who played Mace in the first film, he was initially told by Aubrey Miller's parents that he was cut out of the movie altogether, and they were going to make the film only about Sindel and the Ewoks. About a month later, though, the folks at Lucasfilm ended up changing their mind about killing the family off-screen. They were going to do this as part of the beginning of this film, and they asked Walker to come in and play his role in a very small part at the beginning. And he agreed to do this because he wanted to show that his character was not going to go down without a fight. Meanwhile, the characters playing the mother and father from the first film ended up passing Guy Boyd, who played Jeremy Tawani in the Ewok adventure, the father. He declined to return because he felt that the role was just not significant enough to make it worth his while, as did Fionnula Flanagan. Paul Gleason ends up replacing Boyd in the battle for Andor. The mother ended up not getting recast. She was revealed to be dead at the start of the film. Now, although it is made for television, there is an emphasis here to give the battle for Endor a more cinematic feel, like one of the original Planet of the Apes sequels or what might pass for a Lord of the Rings film before the advent of CG-laden blockbusters. Isidore Mankowski, he ended up stepping into the main job of director of photography for Battle for Endor. He had handled second unit duties for the Ewok adventure, and Mankowski, he was a veteran of TV and a few notable 1980s flicks that were released in cinemas, like The Muppet Movie, which I I guess technically is a 70s movie, but Summer in Time and Better Off Dead were well-known films from the 1980s that he had done before doing this. He happened to be a colleague of producer Thomas G. Smith, and he worked with Tom Smith on a project for Encyclopedia Britannica Films years before, and they ended up having a rapport that allowed him to be brought back in. Production values. These are very high for a TV release. It has some theater-worthy visual effects. It has a very strong score really good makeup and costume work. The special effects budget alone cost about $2 million, and that rivaled some big screen theatrical releases, while the budget of the film overall ranged anywhere up to $8 million. That's more than twice that of a high-end made-for-TV movie, usually. Had they made this a film from scratch, I think it would have probably cost much more than that, if it had even gotten made, because Lucas was able to cut a lot of costs by shooting near his home in Marin County. He reused many of the costumes, the sets, the props from the first film. They continued to use matte paintings and stop-motion animation to try to save money on visual design, and nevertheless... Those expecting something to emulate the big screen space battles of the original Star Wars trilogy might be sorely disappointed still by the comparison to the movies. Now, where Battle for Andor ends up falling short is in having a compelling story. It does proceed to emulate The Wizard of Oz a bit in the roundup of a motley quartet trying to find a way for the young girl to fix a star cruiser, kind of like a hot air balloon, and to make it off of Endor. The moon of Andorra gets attacked by a vicious band of thuggish Sanyasin marauders, these ancestors who crash-landed on Endor some time ago, and a powerful, shape-shifting sorceress named Cheryl under the leadership of King Tarek. They attack the Ewok village, they take the ship's power source after killing Sindel's family, and then take away all of the Ewoks except Wicket back to their dungeons as prisoners. And while roving the forest, Sindel and Wicket end up encountering a mysterious creature called Teak, who leads them to the home of this grumpy hermit named Noah Brickwallon, who we come to find has also crash-landed there some time ago. Uh, You have to wonder, does Endor have a tractor beam running, kind of like the Death Star that is bringing all these ships to crash into it? 
Noah ends up warding them off, but his icy exterior begins to melt to friendship, Then that leads to Teak and Noah helping Sindel and Wicket on their quest to free the imprisoned Ewoks from the Marauder's Castle. King Tarek, though, is confident that the powerful crystal that they discovered that's an energy cell that was used by the Tawani family star cruiser has magical powers. The power, Tarek feels, will get them off of Endor, and that Sindel must be some sort of sorceress herself who can tap into those powers. Now, there's a lot more to the story than that. This actually is a much more complicated and layered film than the first one, and I think refreshingly so in that respect. Although I do think that a lot of the smaller kids that really love the Ewok adventure might get a little bit lost here. Warwick Davis, he returns in one of his several signature roles. He plays Wicket this time with many more lines of dialogue than he had in the first film. Not that Davis needed to worry about memorizing that dialogue. Daniel Henriquez provided the voice of Wicket in both of these TV films. There would be no need, though, for Burl Ives to come back to narrate. Wicket speaks some sort of uh, broken basic. Basic is what they call the equivalent of the English language in the Star Wars universe. However, this speaking of basic does complicate the timeline of Star Wars. Because according to Lucasfilm, these Ewok films take place sometime between The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. So why doesn't Wicket speak basic at all when the Ewoks are encountered by the Rebels in Return of the Jedi, especially during Wicket's famous scene with Leia? Some Star Wars fans have tried to explain this as the Tawani family didn't speak basic, but they were speaking another language that they translated to English for the benefit of the viewing audience. I think this other language explanation, that is kind of far-fetched if you think about it, because the Sanyasan Marauders also speak this language, and Cheryl and Noah, all of whom are not from the same places in the galaxy as Sindel. Now, just before making the battle for Endor, Warwick Davis received a call to appear as one of the Goblin Corps in Jim Henson's Labyrinth, and Davis readily accepted because he wanted the chance. He was really excited to work with David Bowie. However, both Labyrinth and Endor were filmed around the same time, so that really required some tricky scheduling. But luckily for Davis, Lucas accommodated this because he was the executive producer on both films. Aubrey Miller's performance here, it's a big step up from the stiffness of her delivery in the Ewok adventure. I think the team who made this film worked well with her strengths. They knew her weaknesses that they learned from the first go-around, and they built this narrative around her assets. Surprisingly, despite her star appeal here, this would be the final acting performance from Miller. Reportedly, ABC did like her interaction with co-star Wilford Brimley, and they were offering her a role on a sitcom with him if she were so inclined. But her parents, who wanted to protect her from the Hollywood lifestyle, even though they had gotten an agent by that point, they declined the part on her behalf. They decided to get her out of show business altogether. Now, Wilford Brimley here, he's very solid as the cantankerous Noah. He looks a little bit like David Letterman in his older bearded years, if you ask me, who, along with the amusing and mischievous Teak, give the film some welcome comic relief from the sour opening and the oppressive nature of the villains and their evil scheme. Reportedly, Wilford Brimley didn't like working with the Wheat Brothers at all. He actually called them, when he was off screen, the Idiot Brothers. So production designer and future feature director Joe Johnston, he ended up coming in to shoot all of the remaining scenes involving Wilford Brimley's character. Some Star Wars fans have observed that the relationship between the orphaned Sindel and the crusty old Noah feels like a forebearer of the relationship that occurs between the orphaned Rey and the crusty old Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi. A lot of echoes here of what would come later. 
Now, Teague, the sidekick to Noah, was initially crafted as a puppet, but Wilford Brimley, when he was shooting his scenes in the early part of this movie's shoot, he vehemently grew angry about acting with this doll. Brimley asked then 16-year-old Nikki Batello, she was an extra who also happened to double for Warwick Davis in the Wicked costume, and she happened to be nearby on the set. He asked her to sit in place of the puppet so he could interact with something that was real. And one day, Lucasfilm asked Patello to come into work, unusually early, come into the creature shop. They ended up having her sign a contract and to join the Screen Actors Guild because they planned to turn Teak, by that point, into a living character, not a puppet. And they would have Nikki Patello playing the role of Teak under makeup. The action scenes are well handled. They do run a bit long, though. They seem to go on quite a long time, which kind of only speaks to how little actual story there is to cover the runtime of this film, to try to fill it up into a two-hour time slot, even though it's more complicated than the first film in terms of its plot. There really is not a lot of story development once you get the ball rolling, so that action toward the end really goes on a long time. But you have to hand it to Industrial Light and Magic for what they actually made with such a limited TV budget, Visual effects here, they rivaled a lot of what was playing in theaters at the time, but for a film supposedly aiming toward children around the age of Sindel, I think those prolonged sequences of violence do leave it a film that struggles to find a defined viewership that will be completely satisfied by the end result. The character of Teak is a marvelously crafted furry creature. It looks like a cross between a human and rabbit running around using fast motion effects. Sean Phillips also provides a strong presence. That's the witch named Cheryl. Although, you know, her appearance does feel a little bit more like Masters of the Universe than Star Wars. Seven-foot Carol Striken, who played Lurch in the Addams Family movies, he plays the main Betty hero, Tarek. He's very formidable in his presence here. These characters are looking for the power of magic, but it's merely parts for the starship used for interstellar travel, and it really is kind of interesting to see where that goes. At least for adults, I don't think kids are going to be too keyed in on this, at least when they're very young. They might when they watch it a little bit later. When it was all said and done, the Ewoks Battle for Endor ended up being... A little bit of a disappointment in terms of the ratings. It had an 18.7 rating from Nielsen. That was a 26 share. It placed, for the week, 26th place. It lost its time slot against Murder, She Wrote on CBS and the first hour of this miniseries called Double Take. Before it was released, there was a lot that was going on in the press before the showing of the film that Lucas was going to be competing with his buddy, Steven Spielberg. He had his own show that was appearing on Sunday night that was going to be opposite this film, but that show was not performing as well in the ratings. And with this being the November Sweeps Week, NBC decided to air a made-for-TV miniseries instead called Mussolini, The Untold Story. The Battle for Endor's Nielsen rating was respectable, but still a considerable step down from the first film. The Ewok Adventure had finished fifth among all made-for-TV movies in the season it was released in 1984-85, but the second effort tied for 71st, so a really big step down. And that message basically sent that these movies were not as popular as they thought they would be. Despite the faltering with the audience, though, like the first film, this follow-up did receive an Emmy Award nomination for Best Children's Program and a Juried Award Emmy for Outstanding Visual Effects, and it also got an additional nomination for Outstanding Sound Mixing for a miniseries or special, so even one more Emmy nomination there. Video versions of The Battle for Endor do differ somewhat from the network release. They removed a couple of scenes, they restored others to appease network censors. A couple of lines of dialogue also come across differently on the DVD, and the end credits don't roll over the last scene of the film like they do in the original network showing. 
you know, they take the more traditional place after the epilogue with a black background. With diminishing returns and without any long-term development deal in place, George Lucas decided not to follow up with another made-for-TV Ewok release without so much as a goodbye. As Wicked says at the end, goodbye, not good. However, Warwick Davis revealed in subsequent interviews that a third film was planned. It was tentatively titled Ewoks 3, but Lucas decided to end it here. Despite being considered non-canon today, some of the story elements and the characters would reappear later in other works. The Ewoks cartoon show on ABC Saturday mornings from 1985 to 1987. It captures many of the aspects of these two films, including the reappearance of Isrina the Wistie from the Ewok adventure. In 1986, Random House published an adaptation of The Battle for Endor entitled The Ring, The Witch, and The Crystal, an Ewok adventure. Apart from Ewok-related tie-ins, in 1987, Teak appeared as one of the pre-flight boarding party in this instructional short that was made for the Star Tours attraction at Disneyland, which ran until 2010, before it was revamped with newer characters in 2011. An adult version of Sindel Tawani, her character makes an appearance in a 1996 Star Wars Expanded Universe novel called Tyrant's Test. She was a reporter on Coruscant as an adult. In the indoor setting of the 2003 Star Wars MMORPG game called Star Wars Galaxy and Empire Divided, players can encounter the Gorax from the Ewok adventure and go through the home base of the Sanyasan Marauders from the battle for Endor. All of these stories ended up no longer existing in the existing Star Wars canon, at least for now. Sometimes they get brought back in, and one element that put back into the canon are the Blurgs whose actual origin stems from some of the concept work that was done for the Tauntauns for The Empire Strikes Back. These Blurgs are these two-legged reptilians that were used by the Marauders as beasts of burden. The Blurgs ended up reappearing in, very briefly, the TV show Star Wars The Clone Wars, as well as in one episode of Star Wars Rebels. In more recent times, they appeared prominently. If you've seen The Mandalorian recently on Disney+, you definitely do see the Blurgs quite a bit in those early episodes. So bringing back those Ewok movies back into canon, maybe? Well, at least the Blurgs are back. For all of this, this is a really close call for me. I almost give it a recommendation, but I just can't. I just can't do it. It's really kind of there on the borderline, but I do feel that a lot of people will be disappointed by the battle for Endor. I do think it's a step up from the first film, which I gave two and a half stars out of four two. So this one is a higher two and a half stars. It's almost to a three, but I can't quite recommend it because I do feel that there are just not enough elements there and those lulls from those prolonged action scenes do sink in so I do feel it does fall short there so I can't quite give it a wholehearted recommendation even though I do think that some people who were disenchanted with the first film will like this one a little bit better if they're more mature maybe little kids may not like it as much but two and a half stars is what I will give Ewoks the battle for Endor and that ends our trilogy of made-for-TV Star Wars films. But coming up next, for the next episode, I'm going to be kicking off another three-part series. And we're going to start the next series off with a film very much related to this because it was made by Lucasfilm. It does feature Warwick Davis. George Lucas actually co-writes the screenplay on this one from 1988. Another fantasy adventure film, Willow. So next week, Willow will be the feature film I'm going to be covering. And that will be for those people who subscribe. So if you haven't clicked the subscribe button and you want to hear my take on Willow, click that subscribe button now and you'll get that when it comes out. 
Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. If you have your own thoughts on these Ewok adventures or the Star Wars holiday special, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net. You can also find links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, Instagram. Any way that you want to get in touch with me, you can find it all there at quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Thank you.